Welcome to the Rebecca Panapinto Project. Today, I am very excited to host James Rorys. For more than 30 years, James has helped CEOs and sales leaders transform the wisdom within their companies into reliable sales growth engines that accelerate revenue and multiply the value of a life-changing exit. James has worked with more than 6,500 mid-market companies, family businesses, startups, as well as global enterprises. And many of these have been Inc. 500, Deloitte Fast 50, Deloitte Fast 500, and Innovation Award winners. James has a very incredible background and is making a massive impact through his company called Flores Group. So we talk a lot about that today, as well as what James believes it takes to be successful in enterprise sales. Enjoy the show. James, welcome to the show today. Glad to be here, Rebecca. Likewise, it's gonna be a lot of fun. You're such an interesting person. I've really enjoyed following you. you and getting to know you. So I'm excited to hear more about your story and learn about what you offer to the world. So let's dive in today. Uh, I know we spoke a little bit about digital transformation in the context of your business before we first got yeah. together to record this podcast. And something you stood out that I really liked and wanted to start with in our conversation today was around some metrics that McKinsey has shared about digital transformation success rates in the enterprise. It's like four to 11%, not great. Uh, and I know you've studied this, you solve a lot of these problems for your customers. So I want to get your perspective on one, why you think that is, and two, some advice on how we can change that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? I've been doing this for about 30 years. So back in 91, I left grad school and just began consulting. And what we see today is we really haven't learned much, right? What, we, what we're doing today is the same thing. We're chasing tech. We're chasing the promise of tech. And we're not really looking at the human side of the business, the people side of the business, who we are, how we operate. And, and the reason we're doing that is because the folks that run the tech deployments really aren't invested in the human side of the equation, right? They're invested in the tech side of the equation. Yeah, code is ones and zeros. It's easy, it's controllable, and doesn't have emotions, doesn't have feelings, isn't human. So I think the, the natural inclination is like, cool, I can control this. Let's get all over it. Let's make a plan and it'll happen. Right. And there's a right. lot of feelings and emotions in humans that are like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> <laughs> no, right. I know. It's, it's crazy. So how are you solving a lot of these problems in today's world? I know we talked a little bit about you know, 30 years ago with the CIO's turnover of jobs. I feel like there's more stability now. Mm -hmm. but the problems can be more detrimental. So how are you addressing solving those problems? We see more success in organizations that are led by leaders who are more level five type leaders, leaders who, are, who operate at a higher level of understanding the human side of their business, connecting with, with people as human beings rather than seeing them as uh, like machines who are only worth the activity they can produce, right? So we look at cultures that are led by leaders who understand this holistic view. Um, they aren't willing to be, you know, um, sold or they're not, it's not going to be easy for them to drink the Kool-Aid that says, look, all you have to do is deploy the tech without thinking about who is actually going to be using it. The less ready, so in terms of readiness, the less ready uh, a leader is, um, the more they're going to be driven by their insecurities and the more those insecurities are going to um, help them make decisions that will be detrimental to the organization. You said insecurity, and I mm. think that's something a lot of people are not willing to, one, look at or even yeah. a lot of times aware of. But 
there is this term of imposter syndrome that is. Are imposter syndrome and insecurity the same thing? That's a great question. I mean, the way I understand imposter syndrome is, is I go to work every day or I go to, to do something and I, while I'm, while I'm qualified, I wonder if I'm going to be discovered as a fraud. Which stems from insecurity. But I think the insecurity part, you're unaware of. The imposter syndrome, you can be aware of. Because imposter right. syndrome is a soundtrack in your head, like demeaning you. The insecurity, I think a lot of times is so underlying, you don't even know you're insecure about a specific element of the job. Right. Right. That's a well said. Yeah. You, you can, you can experience the symptom, but it's hard to really understand the underlying cause without, without some diagnosis. It takes a lot of vulnerability, I'm sure. So when it comes to like yeah. helping identify insecurities, are you approaching it with like, these are the main 15 insecurities that we see in tech leaders and helping them identify that? Or is it a lot of self-discovery and them reporting back? Because that seems like, you know, option mm -hmm. two, scary yeah. and that that would bring a lot of resistance. So if so, how do you, how do you balance that? I guess, introduce vulnerability to this situation. Everybody can identify friction. If you just help somebody think about the friction that they experience throughout the day and if they, if they take the step to say, yeah, I'd like to see if I can do something about it. The question that becomes, okay, great. So is, is, is reducing that friction going to be more a function of you changing the world around you or changing the way that you operate within that world? You know, pretty quick though, right? When you get introduced to these folks by the level of resistance that you're getting from the leadership and from the people that you're engaging with around the assessment, I would think, you know, in like a day if there's going to be someone on the team yeah. or the whole team receptive, or if, you know, close that door, go help the next company. Yeah. You know, um, one of the, one of the great, it, it really is all about the goal that an individual organization has. There are a lot of times when the organizational, the organization's goals and the limiting beliefs of the leadership are in conflict. And so at that moment, um, oftentimes that can be a moment where the leader says, look, I have to do the hard work and make a change or else I'm going to have to find another job. And sometimes those decisions are made for them. Leadership just says, look, do we think James can change? Probably not. Let's um, cycle him out and find someone else to bring in. Can any of it play into what's become super commonplace in companies of personality assessments? Because that in a lot of companies can become like commonplace language and people are willing to be vulnerable about their personality. Yeah. I think being vulnerable at the next step is further. So is there a way of like, I guess, stair-stepping off of personality assessments and making some connections between that so that like blind spots could almost become like just saying what Enneagram number you are, where it's obviously, you know, not threatening then. Um, I think that's a long ways for a lot of companies to adopt your mindset and your processes and how you do things for them to be that right. comfortable with that. But would that be something that you could see evolving within enterprise that it can become commonplace language so that a lot of these companies have this self-awareness of where limiting beliefs are and how they can mm. actually change besides just like, yeah. oh, well, I, this is my personality. This is how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which happens. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting about this and, uh, you know, personality assessments, that is technology. That's 70 years old. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's old tech. And it came out of a post-World War II environment, right? Where, where we were trying to make sense of human beings and we came up with all these various versions of personality assessments. And when we think about when we think about personality in the context of business, a lot of the things that we hope personality will tell us doesn't, right? Yeah. Essentially, you know, personality assessments are great for helping people understand uh, and communicate, right? And build a camaraderie around a team, but they, they don't go deep enough, right? To help us understand the why behind the way we behave. I think the key is making it more commonplace because I'm sure seven years ago, people were like personality assessments, like what? (laughs) People were worried about discrimination suits and all these different things, but they become commonplace and non-threatening. So now it's getting people to adopt the next level of that as a normal standard of practice and being able to let that be commonplace and and not intimidating, especially because there's such a vulnerable aspect to it, but it being just normal. What are your motivations? What's your purpose? Yeah. Companies are coming along that way. Some way more progressive than others, especially through the last two years that we had. But it's, I mean, I think it's less than that 4 to 11% success rate for digital transformation of companies that, that get this. Yeah. You know, I love that comment that you made. And it's for all of us who have ever worked for someone. And this is this goes back to why I was largely unemployable coming out of grad school. During grad school, uh, I went to Northeastern where we had cooperative education programs. So I was involved in three, you know, three work experiences during my schooling. And if it wasn't for the relationship between the job and the university, I would have been gone right away because I just couldn't find a fit. And so my insecurities were were so profound that it wouldn't allow me to even kind of offer any respect to the people that I was working with. I was raised a fourth generation entrepreneur. I had the arrogance of my youth, the arrogance of my MBA, and the arrogance of being raised that entrepreneur. So it was really, I had a lot of strikes going against me. But, you know, what can a leader do to break down the barriers and make and make a team feel comfortable with that level of vulnerability, right? What they can do is they can take the first step. So what's your opinion of psychological safety and that being a big part of communication within the corporate environment. Yeah. I, can I ask you a question? Tell me where yeah. that came from. I mean, I love, I love the, the phrase, right? Psychological safety. What does it mean to you in your experience? Yeah. So I've had many people on the show who have brought it up and that's actually how I was first introduced to the topic of like, really what is psychological safety? And one guy in particular has a son who is going through a gender transition, which has been a very interesting experience for him and especially for the child in the environment that he's growing up in. And so through that experience and through understanding his child's emotions and how to manage that and how to help this young child basically go through an everyday challenge, he realized that he didn't have his own emotional intelligence and his own, you know, social and psychological safety environment in his home let alone his corporate environment. So it gave him a wake-up call to the fact that in a lot of cases, he was asking things of his team, demanding things of his team, bulldozing over situations without taking any consideration of what's going on in their personal lives, you know, where they are and whatever stage of life they're in. 
and how they're experiencing the company. Because another really interesting fact and thing that I've been studying recently is around how like siblings can grow up in the same home, but they all experience their parents differently. (laughs) And that's because there's this different way that we perceive the world and we perceive people that if other people aren't aware of it can cause damage to one personality, but not another. So being self-aware and especially understanding a very high stress situation that a teenager is going through, there's all of a sudden this awakening of, oh, whoa, there's a lot more going on in the human aspects of this that I need to be aware of to allow this person to feel psychological safety with me in order to get their best work. Because soon as they're unsafe, I think it starts also that situation of like a bad fit job where they're eventually going to leave because every day is feeling like a hostile environment, even if it's not. So as you become aware of these situations and what people are going through in their personal life, all the different aspects that affect their performance at work, you can allow there to be a safety aspect to their relationship with you. I think it has to come from the top. It has to be led. And like you said, it has to be shown, not just said, or else it really doesn't happen. And people can feel that. Yeah. I just, I just love those stories. It's, it is amazing. When I, when I was growing up, um, you know, there was never, I never really heard about trans in the, in the context of my, my age as I was growing up, preteen, teen, et cetera. Uh, and my kids all have friends that are at various stages. I have clients who have kids, same situation that you're in. Um, the thing, the thing that resonates with me about your story is, is, a, is a simple perspective that I have um, that was taught to me by one of my coaches. And, it's, and, it, and it can be summarized in two, two statements, right? I grew up believing this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm-hmm. When you think about that statement, I, you know, you could, you could, you could ruminate on this and think about this for a while. I actually think this that statement is really what is at the core of what's wrong with our society today. <laughs> if if you believe there are things that we want to change in our society, this is this is at the core of it from my experience. Why would I say that? When you think about that statement, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that is a very me-centric statement. It means that my the center of the universe is me. Just like the example you gave of that leader whose child was going through a transformation, that leader only knew how to judge or view that child based on their own experience, right? And so it didn't make sense. And if it wasn't their child, they might have even rejected that or just said, you know, would have ignored it or whatever, right? Dehumanized that situation. Uh, we We all have the potential to do that. The way I, the way that my coach helped me turn this around is, is instead of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Yeah, it, it's it takes selflessness, it takes vulnerability. I think that's yeah. that's the block of people going the extra step. And I've got an example from a sales context, which you and I are both very passionate about enterprise sales. And this one blindsided me, like four years after I did a deal, because I realized how unaware I was in a situation. Uh, but I was calling on this massive company. This guy loved my company, loved me, would always take a lunch or a coffee, um, but definitely favored the personal side more than the business side, which was fine. I was in the South at the time. That's how they do things. And the business was still coming. So I stopped 
to do the rapport and the it was working exactly yeah the personal yeah. side of business well what i didn't realize fast forward four or five years ago there was a famous show about a cult and the experience of people coming in and out of this cult and no joke this person is a highlight story of the show that while i was doing business with him he was trying to save his daughter from the cult mm. i had no idea absolutely no idea and i had a personal relationship and it made me realize like wow one i'm glad i stopped and did what i needed to do on the personal front then but oh my gosh i could have done a better job i had no idea there was all of this in his personal life affecting his work and like why he really needed us to help him be a hero at work mm. so he could go deal with personal stuff. and i was just blindsided when he came up right. as like a uh, you know person talking about his experience with this the specific cult situation. I was like, no way. I looked at the years and I was like, I was literally selling during that situation. And it made me realize like, wow, people are going through a lot of stuff. And if I'm only there to like close the deal, get the next sale, you know, worried about what I can get from their company and from their success in a role, missing 80% of the picture. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful story. Um, you know, it's, it's like when politicians, they don't really understand the problems that their constituents face until the problem it, it impacts their family. Then all of a sudden it's a big deal and they want to go do whatever they can for it. It's, it's that it's human nature, right? It's not something that we should that we should um, denigrate people for or we should denigrate ourselves for or feel bad about. It's just the human condition. How do we improve it? Yeah. Right. And so this idea of looking at the world with open eyes, with a level of curiosity, uh, even when it's uncomfortable, you know, that's, that's, that's a healthy thing to do yeah, in, in many cases. Yeah. And how do we be there for each other? Uh, another yeah. good example. And then I, I have some more questions around um, about your sales philosophies, but sure. um, recently I've been experiencing um, foster care and adoption through my sister's family which has been a super cool experience, but something I was never introduced to in the past, like really like in my face, like somebody being adopted into my family, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But this happened over the last three, four years through her family. And I've just have fallen in love with these children because of it. And so it became a big passion of mine, decided to raise money for it, et cetera. All of a sudden, as I'm putting focus to it, I'm realizing like, that's a situation a lot of people are in that I've been completely unaware of, especially like, the numbers in like the cities and towns I've lived in, I'm like, I had no idea. But now I have awareness and all of a sudden introduced to a foundation that I could give to, introduced to all these people that are you know, helping the foster ecosystem, all these people that were adopted, like friends of mine that were adopted that like, we just never talked about it. And it's just because like a personal experience gave me that awareness that now I'm so thankful for. And I see different scenarios through just a different lens knowing that own situation, but it did have to be personal first. And I hate that that's the reality of like the human condition that a lot of times it does take personal experiences to do that. But if that is what it takes to finally then open your eyes and take action, then at least move forward actively once you've had that awareness. Yeah. yeah. That's a great, that's a great story. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about when we talk about transformation, right? Within an organization, companies, need to allow if they want to you know we say we say growth is the mastery of change 
one of our philosophies. And if you think about that, companies want to grow, but they don't want to change. You know, I want transformation, but I don't want change. I mean, how does that make sense, right? When we think about it, we look at others from the outside, but when you're in the moment, it makes perfect sense because I have numbers to hit, right? If we don't allow folks to fail, if we don't allow them to ex explore, if we don't allow them to, if we don't allow them to, to, to do those kinds of things, then we're not going to allow them to innovate. Amazing things occur if those leaders are just willing to be transformed. Bell mm -hmm. it two by four. <laughs> we all need it at some point in our lives. Um, well, yeah. So on the, t on the topic of um, sales specifically, like personalities and leaders that you've seen, you had this great post at, and we talked a little bit more about it too, around three different sales managers you mm -hmm. see and their effectiveness or ineffectiveness based on that. Will yeah. you walk us through the, those three personalities and your thoughts around them? So we think about an optimum situation for a leader to be in is, is one where we're learning well, we, I'm sorry, where we know the way, right? We're learning. We go the way we're doing and we can show the way, right? We're teaching. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I was thinking through like the personality that's getting managed by these people too, playing into it. But for me, I want somebody who's going to show and only stay a little bit involved in like the, the oversight, if, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I more want them to jump to like, just show me the way and then let me go follow in your footsteps versus like too much of the micromanagement, too much right. of the, the playbook. That's probably a personality thing. And just because somebody hasn't had all three, like in a great little package so far. But right. I was curious if, if personality of who you're managing basically influences those three types of managers being successful in that person. Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, as sales folks, we are taught and trained to build rapport, right? Mm -hmm. So when you meet someone for the first time, and we, we could do this throughout our lives, to build rapport, you want to, you, well, you use rapport to, to lower tension in the conversation because you just met, you don't know each other, we build rapport. And how, one way to build rapport is through mirroring. And we understand that people who are of a certain personality are going to respond positively to somebody else who displays similar characteristics. The organizations that thrive are the ones that are led by these types of people. Yeah. And now that I think about it, I'm sure one person in particular had all three, but because kind of like four kids can experience two parents differently. I wonder if like right. I was one of the kids that experienced him the way I wanted to, which was really just, he showed me a few times and then he's like, go, you got this, make it happen. And I appreciate that. And I ran like that was the boss I worked the hardest for and would do it again. Um, so I'm sure he had all three, but I didn't I didn't need to experience all the three elements in order for me to be effectively managed by him, which I absolutely appreciate. I love working for him. That's awesome. That's awesome. Love so that's the that's the that's the highest level leader. Know the way, go the way, show the way you're invested in learning, doing and teaching. And then just just remove one of them. And now you've got that middle type of manager where they're just they know the way and they go the way. So those kinds of leaders have limited life expectancies in many organizations when they can't move beyond just learning and doing. Or they just maybe don't want to. And so then that's fine. If you know your place, you go to the next startup and do it again. <laughs> well, and a lot of CEOs love these people because they see their movement, their action, but they love them without seeing what they're missing, 
And what they, what are they missing? CRM that people use, right? Because that that leader may not really value CRM. They may not get max value out of it. They may not have max adoption of it. And all the other technology that exists around the sales stack may really not be utilized or maybe over over invested in. Well, I, what what I've seen too is they're a workhorse. Like usually they're the first in the office, the last to leave. Like they're busy. They're making a ton of, ton of stuff happen. And they're like trying to put things in place, but just it doesn't take. And so you don't then want to necessarily penalize someone when like, well, they're working hard and like, you know, so a lot of times it takes a while until there's a realization of like, okay, this needs to be addressed. There needs to be leadership opportunities for growth, things like that, or else the company's going to be stagnant. Yeah. And that's the the problem, stagnant, right? So I, I have worked with organizations that, we're happy with 5% growth a year in industries that were happy with 5% growth. And, you know, I just, it just was not fun um, because there was just no desire to learn at the rate that I wanted to learn at, right. Or the, to, or to achieve at that rate. Yeah. I learned early on no lifestyle businesses for me. Um, maybe if I own one, one day, that'd be okay with 5% <laughs> growth, but in a sales role, no lifestyle businesses. Um, it's good to know. You could, yeah. you know, address opportunities quickly that way. So James, I have one final question for you and I want your perspective around principles. So what is a core principle that you live by to be successful in business? You know, uh, it comes down to what we've talked about today. Uh, and, and so the principle I live by is, is my definition of servant leadership, which is shared goal, shared path. So I want to serve a shared goal in order for you to end up making a successful buying decision. So I know that path. So I'm going to serve a shared goal. I'm going to lead you along that shared path. And by doing so, I can I can create that multiplier effect. I can create a win for the client and I can create a win for myself. James, I'm such a fan. Thank you so much for sharing and coming on the show today. Likewise. Likewise. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. We'll see you again here soon. I hope so. Take good care. <laughs>